A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on Wednesday, November 18th, 2020. I am your host, Anna Garcia, and we have an awesome guest today from the world of crime. We have a DNA scientist, so I'm really excited because, you know, DNA is how so much is being cracked, especially in cold cases. Our guest today, who's also our co-host, is David Middleman. Welcome, David. We're so excited you're here. Thanks for having me. So David is the founder and CEO of Authram Inc. It is a biometrics company that uses DNA sequencing to solve some of the toughest cold cases. The lab is located in Woodlands, Texas, which is just north of Houston. David's team helped to crack an unsolved murder case. 17-year-old high school student who was killed nearly 50 years ago. That is one of the cases we're going to talk about today. Um, also, David is has a PhD in molecular biophysics. David, before we get to our cases, I really want to ask you really how you do what you do, because I read one of your quotes that I was fascinated by. You said, we take terrible evidence that other labs won't touch. What does that mean? So, so a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of the cold cases, the older ones, there's DNA that's been left at the scene. There's, there's some DNA evidence left. But there's something that makes it unsuitable for testing, at least using standard methods. Maybe there's not enough DNA left. Maybe the DNA is degraded. When DNA gets old, it, it breaks into little itty-bitty pieces. Uh, maybe it's been contaminated with bacteria or other non-human things. Lots of things can happen to DNA over 50 years. And so if the DNA is not suitable, if it can't be accepted uh, for other methods, um, we, we love taking those cases on because we don't want any case to get left behind. And you know, once you're out of evidence, the case has truly gone cold. As long as there's evidence, there's something to do. And so we we specialize specifically in evidence that has failed other methods or has been through other labs and has not produced information that is valuable to an investigation. We take that evidence and, and apply our methods to try to get as much information as we can uh, for investigators. In the world of DNA technology, do you have to have, I guess, what would be called like an entire sequence that that almost clearly identifies the individual? Or can you work with bits of DNA that say, okay, we can narrow it down to maybe this field of people? Yeah, I, I think I think in forensics, it's, um, you know, you're, you're not going to expect to get every every little piece of information. You're usually working from fragments or small. And, and I think you're right. It's definitely a narrowing down. Even before you get to DNA, that's, that's really what an investigation is, is the law enforcement side, which really drives the investigation. They're, they're constantly trying to eliminate possibilities until they're left with very few possibilities left. And the same is true in DNA testing. You, you start with the possibility that anyone that has DNA could be involved. That's all of us. And then through iterative analysis and, and testing, you can narrow down and then continuously eliminate uh, folks until you're left with a small pool. And then, and then obviously the DNA part is just one piece. You intersect that with evidence from the investigation, a lot of other non-DNA things. And, um, and then that as, a, as, a, as an entirety leads to uh, law enforcement solving the case. And since what you do is even more specific, let's say, than some other DNA labs, are you involved in the extraction of DNA or is the DNA first extracted and then sent to your lab and then mm, there you work your magic, which I could never understand? So, so we, we actually can do all of it. We'll do whatever we're contracted to do. But um, what we tell law enforcement is that, you know, we like to call it evidence to answers. So we're actually the only lab in the United States that will apply this method, evidence to answers, fully in-house. And so we can take evidence. If you've already got an extract, we'll take an extract. We'll take whatever you got. And then we'll, we'll get the most that we can from it. And, you know, one other thing is that, um, I guess the two things that, that, are, that, are, that are important to note is we're trying to capture tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers and data points in this data um, in contrast to a traditional forensic test where you're looking at like 20 markers. So we're looking at tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers um, in an Authram test. And the second thing is that um, our, our goal is to capture as much information as possible from the least amount of evidence. Because as I was saying, if you consume the evidence or the evidence is gone or unsuitable, then, then, then the case truly goes cold. So our goal is not just to get that information, but to do it using the least amount of input evidence necessary. 
And that's, that's valuable when you have a case that has very little DNA left, but it's even valuable in a contemporary case where you don't necessarily want to go exhaust your, your evidence or your budgets just running a bunch of stuff. So we, we've really optimized one test that can get a lot of information from very little input and, um, and then hopefully get the information the investigator needs to crack the case. This is just fascinating, David. So we're going to talk about um, your case. I want to tell everyone what are the two cases we're going to focus on. And of course, your case is going to be at the top. This week, new details have emerged about Bethany Decker. That is a 21-year-old pregnant woman who was last seen in her Virginia apartment almost 10 years ago. We covered the case on Crime Watch Daily, and today we'll have the latest on that. But first, this is David's case. A 77-year-old suspect has been arrested in the killing of Texas cheerleader Carla Walker. He's now been indicted by a grand jury on a capital murder charge. Of course, David's our guest, and it's his lab that led the testing to get to this point. So here's what happened. Carla Walker was 17 years old, and she was a varsity cheerleader. This is 1974. Her boyfriend... Rodney McCoy was the starting quarterback for his high school Texas football team. I mean, honestly, David, it's like, you know, the perfect happy high school couple that we're talking about. They'd gone to a Valentine's Day dance. They were in the parking lot of a bowling alley doing what it is that teenagers do after the dance, a romantic dance. And this is where this horrible assault takes place. Now, Keep in mind, there was only a limited amount of evidence and a limited amount of information at the time. Apparently, the boyfriend says he's sitting in the car. All of a sudden, a guy shows up with a gun, is threatening them. Before you know it, the boyfriend has been hit in the back of the head, and he passes out. And then Carla, Carla disappears. She's gone. She's taken, and and no one knows what happened to her. Um, Three days later, her body is found. And according to the forensics at the time, Carla had been beaten, tortured, raped, and strangled. And the killer had injected her with morphine. It was a horrendous, horrendous case. So I think what's interesting here, David, is they were able to preserve some of her clothing and her bra. Are these the kinds of things, whatever it is that she had on her person, because I don't know how how well they would have detailed, let's say, the car for forensics at that time in the 70s. Are, is that what helped get to the, to, the, to the bottom of this case? Yeah, it's, it's incredible if you think about it. It's 1974, right? So there's no, there, there, there were no DNA testing um, really methods for, for forensics. And, um, and for the investigators to have the foresight to, to, to well preserve and, and document all the evidence um, I think is, 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 the, is the reason that we were able to actually make any progress in the case. So I think it's incredible um, that even in the 70s, they were, they were thinking very carefully about how to, how to store, this, uh, store these items and, and make sure that they're all preserved. And you know, the notes in this case are just extraordinary. And there's decades of work that was, uh, that was uh, you know, put together by, by generations of investigators that have tried to comb every little detail. So, so I, think, I think that was a huge probably the most important factor in, in getting this case, um, you know, resolved. Right. Because the DNA ultimately came from her clothing and from the bra she was wearing. And of course you would say like, how would another man's DNA be on her brassiere, especially when she has been sexually assaulted and all the other horrible things that have been done to her. Okay. What's interesting is at the time they had a person of interest and this person of interest has always been a person of interest, but police were never able to do much more with it. Two months after Carla's murder, Glenn McCurley was questioned by police. Now, he told cops at the time that his gun had been stolen and he didn't report it to police because he was an ex-con and he had done some time for car theft because apparently the type of weapon that was used and some ammunition was found at the scene connected back to a gun that he had. So he claimed that he had worked on the day of the murder until 4.30 and that he was a truck driver and that the day after the murder, right, she still hadn't been found, that he was off. That was his day off. So really what's interesting is that your DNA testing ultimately leads back to him, except Mm -hmm. you give the cops and the prosecutors the ammunition to finally arrest him. So um, let's talk a little bit about how this process happened. 
uh, our understanding is that you were able to generate a genetic profile using DNA that had been extracted from the victim, the victim's bra. So when you finally, did you come up with that, let's say on the first pass, did, did it actually indicate a person? Did it indicate a family of people? Yeah, th those are all good questions. So um, this case has been worked for decades and, and we were not, the, you know, it's very common actually, but um, Othram usually takes on cases like I told you after they failed elsewhere. And so we were not the first lab to look at this evidence. Uh, in this particular case, they had uh, another lab had performed uh, a DNA extraction, got DNA, and, and they had used other laboratories to attempt this kind of advanced uh, testing uh, to generate as much information as they could. And all the testing that they had performed um, had been unsuccessful, and, 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 and basically because uh, I believe they had mentioned the DNA was degraded. This happened prior to Othram's involvement, so I don't know all the details, but they had made attempts to use that DNA, and as such, they already had a DNA extract. They had consumed the majority of the DNA, um, and I could give you exact quantities, but it's... When you say, no, 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 that's okay, but I think it's really important for people to understand it is, I think, uh, perhaps you can explain it much better, is that when you extract the DNA, you're actually destroying a tiny bit of the evidence itself in order to get that DNA. Is that true? Yeah, so you're, you're consuming evidence to, to develop a DNA extract. And, um, and they had developed a few extracts, and they had one that had a lot of DNA. It was like tons of DNA. And, and that DNA all ended up getting used without producing an answer. And so this is one reason that you know, I told you earlier, like we're, we're really cautious about producing profiles uh, with the least amount of uh, evidence consumed possible because you don't know if it'll work. It doesn't always work. And then even if it does work, you don't know if it'll lead you to future testing. So I think the biggest danger in, in working these cold cases is to fully consume an extract because, as you said, the evidence is destroyed in the process of making that extract. And if you use up all the DNA and all the evidence, then, then you literally have nothing. And so um, the good news in this case is there was a uh, an inferior extract that was developed, had less DNA, wasn't as good, uh, but it, it had remained and it was not suitable for testing anywhere. And so we took, uh, we took that, uh, that evidence and using that evidence, we, we, we built a profile of tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers. And what we were able to do with that is we were able to use uh, genealogical databases to identify distant genetic uh, relationships. And we took that and then we applied it, uh, we basically took these matches for which we know who those people are and we know how they're related exactly, you know, in terms of like genetic distance to our unknown person. And then we take that information and we overlay it on a family tree. If you know the identity of the matches and so you know where they go on a family tree and then you know your unknown is a certain distance from those matches, then there's only a finite number of ways you can put the unknown on a family tree. And, and as you noted earlier, it's through a process of elimination that you basically prune the tree until you're left with only a few possibilities. It's different for every case, but in this specific case, what happened is we narrowed it down to a couple that had three sons. And so, um, and, and I'll never forget, because this was on July 4th, it was on Saturday. My lab director, we, we work all the time. So my lab director called me, he's like, I, you know, I think we have an interesting uh, result. And, uh, and, and, and mind you, the information about uh, the weapon and these people that have been under, uh, you know, uh, persons of interest, of which, by the way, there was many. It wasn't just this one guy. There was tons of folks. You could imagine he was not the only person in Fort Worth that owned a weapon that matched the description. So correct. Um, we knew none of this information. We're, we purposely blind ourselves so that the information we generate is is truly orthogonal and separate from the information they have. So we uh, we call um, we call Jeff Bennett. So the, the detectives on the case were Jeff Bennett and Leah Wagner. We call, I, I text Jeff and I say, I'm really sorry, it's July 4th, but do you have a minute to chat? And he's like, for this case, always. These, these, these two folks can't get enough credit for being on fire 24-7. And, and I really mean that. I'm, I'm a late night texter sometimes. <laughs> they, never, they never fail to respond to a message. And so I, I told Jeff, I said, I said look, I think, I think we have a, a, we're narrowing it down. We got a family. We'll see where else we can dig. But we tell him the surname and he's like, hang on a second. I have, I have something in my notes. And remember, it's July 4th, and he has his notes right next to him. So, Of course he does. He's a good guy. Yeah, obviously working on this case, uh, just like we are. Um, and so we dig through it, and he looks through it, and he goes, I have this gentleman 
uh, who happens to be one of three brothers that we that we said would be candidates. Um, and and I said, well, it's, it's interesting because you know he's identified this guy because of uh, the sweep they did for folks that had a similar weapon, and and we on a on a separate path used DNA. So at that point, uh, they took over the investigation and they they used the traditional testing methods then to confirm that in fact his twenty marker, as they would say, CODIS profile matched uh, the crime scene. So you know it's also important to note that you know the crime scene itself, when they had developed the profile originally, they uploaded it to CODIS, but he's not in CODIS. He hasn't been convicted of a crime. So so this is this is basically the 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 way these two tests work together is CODIS. Is, a, is an amazing way to confirm that you are at a crime scene or that you belong uh, to this DNA that's been left somewhere. But if you're not in the CODIS database, CODIS is a terrible way to find people. So what we do at Authram is we, we basically take these profiles that don't have known identities and we'll find them, but we always confirm it using the traditional framework. So Jeff and Leah actually, in this case, confirmed it a couple of different ways, a couple of different times, um, you know, just very, very thorough work. And at, at some point, you know, they have enough evidence now that they approach um, the person of interest and, um, you know, uh, they talk to him and he ended up eventually confessing. And uh, it's, it's, I, I want to make two points. Most people who um, listen or watch our program are obsessed with crime. So they know what CODIS is, but the, for the few who don't, that's basically the criminal database that houses the DNA of convicted felons. And it's, you're in the system, you've been arrested. And the amazing thing is, you know, there are some people whose DNA, they're longtime criminals, but maybe they haven't been in the system unless there was a recent arrest. So it's an imperfect universe from which to pull your DNA. However, you know, you have a lot of repeat offenders. And it's interesting, you say it was July 4th, right? So July 4th, you get the pop, you call the cops. On July 7th, police collect some trash from Glenn McCurley's house, and then it was sent in for more analysis, right? Because they're like, okay, we're zeroing in on the guy. Then by September 10th, the cops go to McCurley's home, and they say to him, we would like a DNA swab. Because, you know, procedurally, what uh, investigators have to do is they have to have their own chain of custody and a chain of evidence as well as you, right? So they've got to obtain a good swab from him, not just, you know, you guys have kind of figured it out on the back end. Now they have to button everything up on the front end, right? So they managed to get uh, two samples, two swabs, and then those were sent in. And then on September 16th, that's when the cops were notified that the DNA was an absolute match without question. Yep, yep. Now, were you when those um, swat when those swabs were sent in? Were they sent into your lab? Is that were you processing that at this point, or then do you turn it over to let's say a government lab that has to do this for um, again chain of evidence, chain of custody? So, so, so our, our lab supports chain of custody, but but I love I love the pro I love these kind of projects where you use a different lab and a different method because it goes back to that earlier point about us not wanting to know about guns or about suspect lists. It, it's it's amazing when two laboratories using wildly different methods get the same answer. And so so we encourage them to use the laboratory that developed the original profile. And this is the 20 marker profile, not what we generate. And they went back and did that. And uh, and, and and they're in a different state. They have a whole different method. And they uh, were able to produce uh, information that, like you said, confirmed the results that we had. I think that's a lot more powerful. Sometimes when we're doing... Um, you know, particularly for working with like unidentified remains, and you can imagine CODIS is not very valuable for for folks that are not criminals. If if someone is found dead somewhere, hard to ID them, and so so we will do like uh, you know uh, additional testing to try to match relatives back to them. But in a case like this where there's a, a criminal investigation, I think it's really important to have uh, you know a, a traditional lab that does this for a living confirm using a whole different set of people, methods, and everything else the answer. And they're, of course, blinded to the work that we found. All they were told to do was to develop a profile, you know, and, and match the two profiles together. So um, this is the best way that it can be handled. It's just amazing. It's just amazing when you think of how everything in investigations and prosecutions has completely changed because of this technology. And the technology changes so quickly, even from two to five years, it's a massive 
change. Yeah, and I, you know, there's 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 folks just just to add, like you know, this guy is not a uh, this guy was not a serial killer. Um, he's not he's not the the typical um, you know you know stereotypical villain you'd see in a in a TV show or a movie, right? He's in, sometimes there are ordinary people that do terrible things, and um, and they hide in plain sight, and um, you know those cases are very hard to work. There's not a pattern of behavior to build. It's not, it's not like the, like, like the shows on TV. And so when you have someone that is ordinary, that has done something, you know, unordinary or, or, or terrible, um, and then continues to hide in plain sight. I mean, he was living in the same area, you know, a few miles from the, the victim's house for the last uh, almost 50 years. Then sometimes there is no other way to generate a lead other than to use these methods. And so, we um, we always work with investigators to exhaust every lead possible before they go to something like advanced DNA testing. But sometimes, like in these cases, you have to uh, you have to try something like this because there's just there's there's literally no other the the perpetrator and the and the the suspect and the victim didn't even know each other. So right. You know, you just, and David, I'm curious, just just slightly off topic, but do you find that more often the DNA testing that you do? actually ends up clearing more people than actually, um, you know, matching or identifying people, right? Because it's a tool that's being used both ways to clear someone of having done something as well. Yeah. In, in a traditional forensic test, you can either match or exclude somebody. What's nice about the kind of testing we're doing is, is we identify folks. So in identifying someone, we are simultaneously exonerating everyone else. We had, um, we had another case is a story of Christine Jessup in Canada. This is a very similar case, girl that was sexually assaulted and murdered. But it was, uh, it was one of the most famous unsolved cases in Canada. And they had actually uh, identified someone, and, and he ended up uh, being wrongfully imprisoned. And, um, and he was exonerated based on original DNA uh, kind of CODIS style testing in the 90s. But when, when we uh, helped investigators solve and actually figure out who actually committed the crime, he, uh, he issued a statement to his attorney and he said, you know, the only true exoneration, because even after he was exonerated, people are still kind of looking at him weird. They're wondering, you know, well, why was he even considered if he wasn't involved? And he and he said the true exoneration comes from identifying who's responsible. So I think, I think, I think that's the power of this method is rather than saying you're a match or you're excluded, you're not a match. I think use this kind of testing to identify the truth, who is actually tied to that DNA. And then you can simultaneously seek justice and identify who's responsible. But then everyone else has been considered, and it could be a lot of people over a period of 50 years. All those other folks are, are cleared. I mean, certainly some folks, you know, had wondered, you know, if they were friends of, uh, of Carla's might have been involved. And identifying who did it and getting them into the legal system, having him confess and explain himself, um, it, uh, it, it, it lifts the, it lifts, even if you don't arrest someone, you know, it, it lifts the burden of, of even being considered as a person of interest uh, for everyone else that had been in any way at all connected to that event. Yes, indeed. And McCurley has been indicted by a grand jury and he's currently being held in lieu of $500,000 bail. What's interesting here is you mentioned his side of the story. So, he did a jailhouse interview with a local radio station, KRLD, and Glenn McCurley gave his side of the story to what happened in those early mornings of February 17th, 1974. McCurley said, quote, I was drunk, really drunk. I was driving around, parking, drinking. McCurley claims that when he saw Carla and Rodney in the parking lot, he claims that he was hitting her, that, that Rodney, the boyfriend, was assaulting her. And he said, I saw him, he was screaming, and I went over there, I opened the door, and I knocked him off of her. Now, here's the part. Let's just say that may be true, which we don't know. It's the next part that absolutely doesn't make any sense. He said, I pulled her over into my car and I drove off. Okay, why? Right? And then he said that he is the one who rescued Carla from her boyfriend instead of abducting her. He says, we talked for a while, she calmed down, and she said that she was thankful for me getting him away from her. And then he adds this. So then, okay, right? So how did Carla end up dead? He said, she just gave me a hug. I gave her a kiss. I mistook her for something else. I didn't mean to do it. Okay. None of that 
makes any sense unless you're going to tell me you were so out of it and so drunk, but still to kill someone, to strangle them, to shoot them up with morphine. None of this makes any sense. His explanation is way too little too late. That's just me. Okay. Now, the other part of this, you know, we've been talking about the science and we've been talking about, okay, this is his version of events is honestly, it's the family here. And you, you keep referring to the fact that in the 70s, there was no DNA technology. There was no such thing really uh, in the way we discuss it, which also means there wasn't a lot of support for survivors and victims of crime. It was just a different time, a different place. So Jim Walker, who is Carla's brother, he says that the murder absolutely devastated his parents. He was only 12 at the time, and he says that he was bitter and filled with rage, and that over the decades, faith and community really helped him. Um, In fact, he spoke so eloquently at the press conference announcing this arrest. I mean, honestly, he he just, he talks about how his... um, his faith was so strong that there is a group at the Capstone Church that would meet regularly just to pray for justice in this case. And we're talking about decades, right? 46 years yep. of prayers. And I think, you know, look at this family, absolutely devastated. He said his mother and his father went into a terrible deep depression. He said back then there was no support for them. There were really no therapists for them. N- none of the advocate um, help that you get right now. It, it was a totally different time. And he, he, I read something that just really touched my heart. He said that the family had this beautiful portrait of their daughter hanging in the family home and that every morning Carla's mother would touch it and say good morning. And so we can talk about science, but at the end of the day, what we're talking about is the lives of human beings and, and finally getting some sense of understanding and perhaps some justice as to what happened to their Carla. Yeah, you know, it's miraculous that the, the person was still alive to be arrested and confirmed as the person involved. Uh, uh, I, I, I wouldn't know what it was like to deal with that kind of a loss, but I would hope that um, Jim and the, and the rest of the, the friends and family have, you know, some, some piece of closure, or some amount of closure that allows them to move forward. Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, this is just my thing. It's it's just so unbelievably unfair that the suspect, and he is just charged so far and indicted, that the suspect got to live his life for decades and do his thing. But not Carla, not Carla's family. No, they suffered. So I don't know what justice will be. And they counted every day. The brother said 46 years, five months, and three days, counting every single day. All right. That was incredible insight. Do you, I'm just curious, David, do you, I know you're the scientist here, but do you ever then get to know the families? I know you get to know the investigators. Is, is that a, a weird world or do you need to keep a wall there? I, I, I speak to everyone involved. I, I speak to uh, advocates. I speak to the families. Um, I'll speak to law enforcement. It's, um, it would be a lot easier and cleaner to just divide into one little piece and stay in, in the DNA lane. But the truth is, you know, this, this process is very collaborative and it's very iterative. And as you said, there's there's other aspects besides the science, which is like, you know, helping helping answer questions, explain things to family and, and help them get as much as they can get from 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 whatever little bit of peace they will get. So um, we talk to everyone. Our, our laboratory works for law enforcement. So we have to be hired and contracted through law enforcement for a law enforcement investigation. But we absolutely have uh, uh, relationships with uh, with the, the families of victims, friends, advocates. We work with a lot of law enforcement groups and, um, and we do what we can. I mean, uh, one, one silver lining in, in, in this case, and I think, it's, uh, I, I think it's important is that, you know, not, not, every, not every sex assault homicide has to go cold for 46 years. We have technology now that can drive these things forward. And you know, I'll give you a quick statistic if you want. Um, you know, CODIS testing, which is, which is again, is an amazing technique and has, has led to a lot of, uh, a lot of successful case resolutions. It, it's like you said, if you're not in the database, you know, you can't be found. And, and just to give you a number on that, um, you're probably aware of the end, the end, the backlog, right? Push to clear these sex assault kits that need to be tested. So, yes. so you run a sex assault kit, um, and, and, and you, you use DNA testing to identify who, who might be responsible for the sex assault. 
the success rate of matching that to a known identity is 15%. And so 85% of the time when you've done that, you actually haven't identified who the person is. And, and that's what happened with Carla Walker. Like they, they put it into CODIS, it just didn't match. And, and, and that's similarly what happened to some of these other cases. Uh, we announced Siobhan McGinnis, another sex assault homicide of a five-year-old, and, and the DNA never matched in a, in a criminal database. So there are, I just want to point it out that clearing the backlog is not the same thing as solving the backlog. And 85% of the sex assault kits that you push through this testing will still need work. And, and for all the reasons you mentioned to, to you know, provide a little bit of closure, to help families, um, particularly on these cases that are on the edge, right? Late 70s, early 80s, people won't be around forever to wait for justice. Certainly the, the people that are suspected will not be around forever to answer for what's happened. And so I think there's an urgency to take this technology. That's why, that's why I, I do talk to families and to advocates, and I do want to share the news of what can be done because I think there's an urgency to go work those cases. If CODIS can't get you an answer and you're in that 85% bucket, then, then you don't stop the case. You, you then flip to the next thing that you need to do, which is this advanced testing that we do at Authorum, and, and, and you go figure out who the person is. Get the information you need to help law enforcement close the case so you don't have additional compounding tragedies. Because frankly, everyone in Carla's circle uh, has become a secondary victim of that initial crime. And that's, that's terrible. And that compounds the longer it takes to get a case closed. Absolutely. Our second story is an update on a case that we covered on the TV show Crime Watch Daily. Bethany Decker was a young 21-year-old military wife. She was a mom. She had a toddler, a son. And then she suddenly went missing in 2011 while her husband was deployed in Afghanistan. The couple had been struggling in their marriage. That was obvious, according to everyone in the family. Bethany was five months pregnant at the time of her disappearance. She also worked as a waitress because she was a, a full-time college student, so she was doing both. She was an honor student at the university. Family says, very intelligent woman, worked super hard. All right. Bethany's disappearance was not reported for three weeks because what ended up happening was there were a bunch of Facebook, uh, Facebook postings and messages that appeared to seem to be coming from Bethany, but the English and and it just and the phrasing, none of it was right. And people started realizing, hold on a second, you're not Bethany. Where is Bethany? Hey, has anybody seen or heard from Bethany? So that's when all these folks started um, to call Bethany's mom. Mom said, you know what? Bethany's so busy, it is not unusual for me not to directly talk to her every day. But you know, these messages were coming in, so it appeared Bethany was alive. All right. So then on February 19th, 2011, Bethany's mother received, you know, a bunch of phone calls from people she didn't know saying something is wrong with Facebook. So then she asked, Bethany's mom asked her mom. So Bethany's grandparents were asked to go check on her apartment in Ashburn, Virginia. Bethany's grandparents say that they found the car all dusty, parked kind of crooked with a flat tire. Never a good sign of what's to come. Apparently, it had been like that for some time. No one answered the door. At this point, the family panics. The mother calls the cops and says, something's happened to my daughter. You know, We think she's missing. They go into the apartment, and they're also tracking cell phones, checking to see if there's any activity on her credit cards. No activity on cell phone. No activity on credit cards. It's as if she has just completely disappeared. And as you and I know, People just don't disappear. A few people maybe want to disappear on purpose, but that is not the majority of these cases. Now, what I find interesting about this, David, as we go through this case is what is really missing from this case is the forensics, the DNA, that this is, this is what is completely absent here. And you might be able to give us some insight into where it might actually be that we're not looking. I just want to talk about the case a little bit more. So they interview Bethany's husband, Emil, and he had seen her recently, but he was ultimately um, checked off the list as not a suspect. However, Bethany was having an affair. She had a, a boyfriend that she was living with. Remember, the marriage wasn't doing well. It's all this drama in someone's life that actually helps to piece a, a crime kind of as DNA, if you will. It's like um, emotional DNA, I'm going to call it, that, that can help piece what's going on in a person's life. So they quickly zeroed in on someone called Ronald Rolden. So 
Bethany met Ronald while working at a restaurant. They began having an affair. And according um, to a local newspaper, it may have been his baby. We don't know for sure whose baby it was, but she was pregnant. So this guy was never charged. Like, no one really was charged. This case has been cold for years. And what's interesting is that now there has been an arrest, but the authorities are being very tight-lipped about why there's been arrest all of a sudden. And we don't believe, we don't believe at least, that forensics has played a role in this. So what do you do with a case like this where you have someone who's disappeared? They've never found her. They've never found her body. And um, the boyfriend, Roland, who's been arrested, he's not been charged with murder. This is not, um, it's not elevated to that yet. So where would they have, I guess I should ask it this way. When you're dealing with what appears to be a missing person and you're dealing with an adult, right? And people can take off. I always say it's in those first 24 to 48 hours where so much of the evidence is lost because cops always treat things as, you know, maybe she just took off. Maybe she was done. So they don't capture the forensics in time. Do you, do you find that that is an issue, let's say, for your more current cases? Well, you know, our, our caseload is obviously biased towards either the remains of somebody or, or, or crime scene because we, we test DNA. But, but we have been involved um, and consulted on cases where and it's a tricky kind of case where there's a suspected crime, but there's no body. So, so what do you do? You want to, either to identify someone or to link someone to someone else using DNA with no body is a challenge. But um, ultimately, that body had to be taken somewhere and Maybe maybe that body was uh, that person was driven somewhere or or somehow otherwise transported. Uh, um, that person would have come into contact with materials, and so sometimes in other cases, um, I, I don't know about this case. There are there are there are other items that can be examined for evidence or or some trace um, kind of uh, DNA that might uh, suggest that that the object or the item had come in contact with that person that's missing. And and while it doesn't definitively prove that the person was uh, murdered or not murdered, at least it can uh, uh, collect more evidence to tie the person who owns those items to the disappearance of that person. And, and sometimes it's enough to get, you know, folks talking and, and, and sometimes it's enough to identify new uh, people of interest that might know something, but have, for whatever reason, not, not come forward uh, earlier. It's an interesting case in the sense that um, Bethany's family has made it absolutely clear that Ronald was abusive, very possessive and controlling, and that um, they were actually helping her to make a plan to get away from him. And we mm -hmm. find often in these it, cases of domestic violence where there is a very violent and controlling individual in the relationship that it is at the cusp of trying to get away or ending a relationship when so many of let's say if she was murdered, where the murders or vicious attacks occur. It's like an inciting incident in, mm. in a relationship like that. It's the most dangerous time, actually, during a domestic violence situation is the moment the person who is suffering tries to get away because then the other one just goes berserk. So um, even though police knew all of this, um, they, they did their forensics in a slightly different way, if you will, they did look into those Facebook postings, and when they traced back the IP address to all the postings that didn't make any sense under her name, well, they all went back to Roland's computer, but that still was not enough to arrest him. So, um, he was always clearly a person of interest, but had never been named. All right, now, 10 years later, he's finally been charged. And what's interesting is he's been charged, again, with abduction. He has not been charged with her murder. Here's something that I think may be playing a role in all of this. It's So that's one thing, right? There's Bethany's um, case. Separate of that, uh, Ronald had recently been released from a North Carolina prison. He was charged with attempted murder for a 2014 domestic violence attack on his then-girlfriend, Vicki Willoughby, in their North Carolina home. Ronald was arrested after brutally beating her, and he shot her three times and took out her eye. This is incredibly violent. 
On May 2016, he pleaded guilty to two reduced charges in North Carolina, felony assault with a deadly weapon and intent to kill um, by inflicting serious injury and felony assault inflicting serious bodily injury. Crime Watch Daily talked to Vicki as part of Bethany's case to further understand what was going on. She describes her attack and she describes what happened that night. Here's a clip. He used to have what I called outburst out of nowhere, um, rages of anger, and they would literally come out of nowhere. One too many outbursts and then physical abuse had convinced Vicky to leave. But one November night, her plan to move on for good almost got her killed. What happened on that Tuesday? He came towards me in the living room, never said a word. He took my laptop and my phone out from in front of me, laid those aside. He grabbed me at the top of my hair and just started plummeting me with his right fist. Immediately snapped my neck because that's the first thing I felt go. I felt it and I heard it. With a broken neck, Vicki crawled to a nearby chair where she had hidden a gun. I had such a fear Ronald was going to kill me. So that night, for some reason, I had two guns. One was under the dog bed, and one was in the chair in front of me. She managed to reach it. But after shooting Roland twice, he was able to grab the gun from her and fire his own rounds. One grazed her arm, the other a direct hit to her head where the bullet stayed lodged. After he shot me, I laid down for a moment. I stayed where I was because I thought I was gonna die. According to TV station WTOP, Ronald Rolden was extradited to Virginia on November 10th following the completion of his North Carolina case. So basically, after he's done serving time for assaulting Vicky and taking her eye out, he gets arrested immediately on this case, on Bethany's case. Now, one of the issues I do believe could be immigration. I think there's the possibility that once he exited the prison, that he may have been deported. So this is speculation on my part, but I got a feeling that authorities said, if we're ever going to get him, we got to get him right now. Mm -hmm. um, so the question is, will he cooperate and give us more information? Will someone else step forward? Or will he only be charged with kidnapping and not on the murder charge? Because he's not been charged with her murder. I mean, a case like this, you know, this one feels very, very cold, even though it's not nearly as old as Carla's case. Yeah, I mean, so, sometimes you're you're just not lucky enough to have. Um, I mean, again, cases with no bodies, they're they're challenging, um, and you're you're not lucky enough to have the evidence that you need. Um, I hope I hope they have evidence, uh, something. I guess they must have something that I guess ties them maybe through this electronic records and everything else to her disappearance, but. I think it's uh, it's very hard to make a case uh, for murder without a body, and uh, and and if they're lucky, uh, hopefully, and it was a murder, hopefully they find some forensic items, whether you know in his car or somewhere else. If he wasn't careful at Facebook posting, hopefully he was uh, similarly not careful about uh, how he uh, you know disposed of the body if it was a murder, and 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 they can comb through those items and find something because if there's DNA, you know. If you find DNA in the trunk of a car, if there's blood in the trunk of a car and it belongs to a person that's missing, it's not proof, but it's, it's definitely suggestive that something, you know, people don't ordinarily ride in the backs of cars in the trunk. No. So, um, right. it, it certainly build a case uh, that something terrible had happened. Um, well, well, I think also, you know, take into account here that this is a woman with a young child. So it's, it, you know, she just fell off the face of the earth. No, there's no uh, way. Yeah, right. It seems, it seems it seems very suspicious at the least. So we'll keep tabs on this one for everyone to figure out um, what more comes from this case that might actually put all the pieces together for us. It's time to move on to our comment section. So, um, David, this is the part of the program where we really talk about the crime cases that you all are talking about out there. A burglar makes pizza before fleeing a restaurant with the restaurant's delivery car. A thief took a break during his burglary of a Fullerton, California pizzeria. He stopped to make himself a pizza, and then he took off in the delivery car. Gotta love that. Very consistent here. 
<laughs> the suspect later was identified as 25-year-old Oscar Sanchez, who broke into the Big Slice Pizzeria on November 8th. So he um, allegedly stole the cash and w- tablets that they had there, and security footage shows him stretching the dough at the restaurant's counter. They've charged him on suspicion of grand theft, uh, grand theft auto, <laughs> and second degree burglary, possession of burglary tools. I don't know if that's the pizza and other crimes. Okay. So that's interesting in a case like that where it's the surveillance video, right, that is the strongest evidence of a case. And um, this is part of the comments section. Justin D. writes, well, what toppings did he use? Cassandra G. writes, at least he wore gloves. Gotta love that, right? (laughs) Our next one is a Florida man tears up a drive-thru because they forgot to put lettuce on his sandwich, Okay. This is apparently what undid the man. Florida man threw a fit at a fast food restaurant because they didn't put lettuce on his sandwich. This is according to the Largo Police Department. Police say that they were called to a checkers after employees reported that Henry R.C. Cabrillo, 49, was beating on the glass window of the drive-thru and he was screaming at employees. And the employees were not only afraid for themselves, they were afraid for all their customers. Finally, police show up. And the police ask the guy for ID. Okay, the beginnings of getting arrested, right? He refuses, and they're like, okay, buddy, we're taking you in. And as they try to put him in the control in the patrol car, he resists arrest. So they charge him with that as well. <laughs> Crystal M writes, make your own damn sandwich, okay? And Maggie C writes, do they serve lettuce in jail? He may get upset about that too. And Zena A, let us pray. He gets locked up. I always like that was the let us pray. Okay, that's really clever. <laughs> David, thank you so much. This has been such an educational episode. Really, really fascinating the way you've just pulled the curtain behind how this how this works. I, I do want to ask you another question before we go, because, you know, obviously people are going to want to follow you um, and, and see what you're up to and what your lab is working on. So I'm, I'm curious of your opinion. It, you know, we hear a lot about... Um, citizen detectives, citizen sleuths, or people who are just really experts at genealogy. And I, I'm curious in this in this world, this massive world where there are so many potential players, um, have you have you been impressed by some of the people who just you know do this as a hobby and manage to crack cases, along with people like you in your lab and your your highly skilled scientists? Yeah, it's it's just incredible. Um, the power of the crowd is uh, the power of the crowd is amazing. We, um, you know, we chronicle some of our adventures um, either because we're crowdsourcing information or we crowdsource uh, we crowdfund cases that otherwise can't get uh, the proper funding. Uh, and we highlight even some of the cases like the one we discussed today and others um, on our website. It's uh, dnasolves.com. Um, so, so if, if if you're curious about cases that either are in progress to being solved or have been solved, and just want to take a look at them, we have a number of stories on dnasolves.com. But um, yeah, we there's a lot of people that have been doing some amazing thing, and you know, I have to tell you, like genetic genealogy has been around for about 20 years, right? And it's been used to help you know adoptees find their parents, to to learn amazing things about your family history. What's happening is in the last couple of years, we have this ability, as we talked about initially, to unlock information from evidence that just wasn't suitable. Even a few years ago, this evidence would not be suitable for testing. The Carla Walker evidence was not usable a few years ago. And in these last couple of years, we can unlock amazing information that could hold the clues to solving these cases. And so um, we, we work with a lot of uh, a lot of different groups. You know, uh, in, in the Carla Walker case is something that we did internally, but we also do cases where we partner with other folks that do things like genealogy and these other kinds of family tree building techniques. And so um, my, 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 my position is if you want to do all this, all this great stuff, you, you need to have the right data. You need to have good data. So generate the most accurate profile you can, get the most information you can while consuming the least amount of evidence possible. And then, then it's available to the world, whether you're a citizen sleuth, whether you're um, within law enforcement, whether you're a company that specializes in this. Amazing things can happen if you can generate that information and unlock uh, you know, valuable, uh, valuable information from evidence at uh, these crime scenes. So our, our focus is primarily just digitizing evidence. How do we take the evidence of the crime scene 
and produce the information that everyone else you mentioned would need to solve a case. I, I, I would love to, you know, kind of uh, imagine the Intel inside kind of model, right? To just basically power the solves. We're not, we're not, there's too many cases for any one company to solve. Our goal is to digitize and, and preserve that information. And then, and then we make it available to, to whoever our partner is um, to, to, to work that case to completion. So, so I love, I love, I love crowd. I love the internet. I love, I love what can happen um, because especially in these investigations, it truly takes a, a village. So if you have an internet village of, of sleuths and other folks that are supporting a case, even just getting the word out. The last thing I'll tell you is, you know, there's, there's a case that we got hired to, to work and we announced it. And two days later, before we even got any DNA, we did nothing on the case. Two days later, the details had, uh, you know, kind of made its way around the media and the family recognized the details and, and came forward and were able to identify the person, um, this was a victim, uh, that had died and remained unidentified for years. So you never know, like you said, it's not always DNA that solves it. There's many tools in your toolkit. Um, just getting the crowd to talk about a case uh, could be the, the difference between a case staying cold and a case getting the attention it needs to get solved. Uh, you know, uh, we're going to ask where people can find you uh, of the web the website information. We will link to that. But last night on Twitter, I found you and, and I was looking through your Twitter feed <laughs> and and you're making a call for, hey, is anybody working on something like this? And I'm and I'm just I love that. I, I love the nature of the direct communication of saying, OK, help me out here. I'm looking for this. Do you have this right? Uh, it, it's like this wonderful you know, international virtual recipe that everyone's working toward yeah. um, perfecting. So, okay, uh, give us the list again of all the places people can either follow you, your company, websites, go ahead. Okay, so the, the best place to learn about cases that we're working or have already worked uh, would be DNA Solves. It's S-O-L-V-E-S dot com, DNA Solves. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter handle is Offram Tech, T-E-C-H. And uh, you can also check out our company on the web, authorum.com. Uh, and so we, we, we love, we, we spend a lot of time on web sleuths as well. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to be where we can uh, as much as possible. And within the confines of what law enforcement allows, we try to be as transparent and collaborative with the crowd as possible. I, I, love, I love, as you said, that, that, that uh, relationship that you can establish with everyone, um, gets everyone thinking about a case, talking about the case and, and if you're lucky, bringing in the tips to law enforcement to help them crack a case, because it usually will take more than just DNA. DNA is one one piece, and then you integrate information from everywhere, and next thing you know, it a, a story unravels. So, and, and we're just excited at Authram to be part of that story. Well, we're excited that you joined us today. This has been tremendous. I hope that you come back. We'd love to talk about more of your cases. I think it's fascinating. Everyone wants to pull the curtain back and understand yeah. and figure out how'd you do that, right? Ooh. Terrific. So we hope you come back, David. Um, of course, you can find me, Anna G News, with one N on all social media sites. You know I appreciate your comments. I love to hear your theories on cases that we cover, and you know I read your comments on YouTube. So as always, you can find our content on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and of course, YouTube. You can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm Anna Garcia, and as we always remind you, don't do crime. Thank you.